0: Welcome to the St. Andrew Sunday Morning Sermon Podcast. You can connect with us online at www.gosaintandrew.com.
1: Today's reading comes to us from the Gospel According to Matthew. While it appears first in our New Testament, most scholars think that the Gospel of Matthew was written after the Gospel of Mark, since about 90% of the material in Mark's Gospel is found also in Matthew. This would mean that Matthew was written somewhere between 80 and 90 CE. Matthew's gospel is often called the teacher's gospel because it focuses so heavily on the teaching ministry of Jesus and emphasizes so strongly the need for faith leaders to understand the word and to teach it to others. Indeed, the role of Jesus as a Jewish teacher, our rabbi, is more prominent in the gospel of Matthew than any other New Testament book. Our selection this morning comes from a teaching block in Matthew scholars call the Community Discourse, which contains lessons on life in the church, forgiveness, and discipline. Let us turn now and hear this relevant and meaningful word of instruction from Matthew's Gospel.
2: Today's reading is from Matthew, chapter 18, verses 15 to 22, from the New Revised Standard Version of the Bible. If another member of the church sins against you, go and point out the fault when the two of you are alone. If the member listens to you, you have regained that one. But if you are not listened to, take one or two hours along with you so that every word on earth will be loosed in heaven again truly i tell you if two of you agree on earth about anything you ask it will be done for you by my father in heaven for where two or three are gathered in my name i am there among them then peter came and said to him lord if another member of the church sins against me How often should I forgive? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, Not seven times, but I tell you, seventy-seven times.
3: Can you think of someone right now whom you are unable to forgive? Someone who at some point in the distant or even recent past hurt you? betrayed you or stabbed you in the back in some way, and you still can't find a way to forgive them? Can you think of someone in your distant or even recent past whom you have harmed in some way, but who, despite your best efforts at reconciliation, has yet to forgive you? As we continue our Peace Prayer series, we stumble across the one line that suddenly makes this whole prayer deeply personal. Where there is injury, pardon. Pardon is the language of forgiveness. To pardon someone is to set someone free, to release a person from whatever penalty has been imposed upon them as a consequence of their transgression. To pardon is to forgive. It's to forgive the harm that's been done and to let them go. The power to pardon or to forgive is such an extraordinary power In fact, under Article II of the Constitution, presidents are granted the power to pardon convicted felons, to set aside imposed punishments and sentences for nearly any federal crime. Every four or eight years, hundreds of people who've committed serious crimes are allowed to walk out of prison as free citizens under a presidential pardon. In fact, most governors in the U.S. are granted pardon power for persons convicted of crimes against the state Before leaving office, governors often grant reprieves for crimes under state criminal law. And again, the the convicted go free. But why do presidents and governors almost always wait until the end of their terms to pardon convicted criminals? Because it's almost always a public relations nightmare. The only person who really loves a pardon is the one actually being pardoned most everyone else is left feeling at least a bit uneasy or unsettled at best, and at worst, morally outraged. Some will wonder, shouldn't everyone have to pay for the consequences of their actions? What about those who've been injured, victims, families, communities? Is it fair that the one who has caused so much harm can simply walk free? Pardon or forgiveness in any context, especially in our personal relationships, is so complicated. It's counterintuitive, unnatural, even precarious. Why? Because it subverts our natural sense of justice and fairness. It inverts our moral sense of right and wrong. It blurs the lines between consequence and compassion. Conventional wisdom is that forgiveness often fails to take seriously the pain and suffering caused by evil and bad choices, as though by forgiving someone, we're letting them get away with something. But perhaps more than any of this, what makes forgiveness so impossibly difficult is that it almost always seems to put the burden of reconciliation back on the one who has been injured. He'll say to you, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? And you think, oh, so this is how it works. You hurt me, and now it's on me to make it right? Or she'll say, I I feel terribly about what I did. Can we start over? And you wonder, if I say yes, am I a, a doormat, a pushover? Is this just another con job? Is she just going to turn around and do it all over again? But make no mistake, forgiveness is so irreplaceably important. We can't live without it. We all know through personal experience, often very painful ones, that no family on earth could ever stay together for long without forgiveness. Not a single friendship could ever survive all the blunders and mistakes we're prone to make without forgiveness. Not even the strongest marriage could ever endure the inevitable ups and downs, the arguments and misunderstandings, the slights and screw-ups without forgiveness. To keep our families, our friendships, our marriages, our communities together, there will come a time when we have to turn loose the injury instead of allowing the injury to become the new center of our identity, the new definition of who we are, the one who has been wronged, the one who has been injured. Only the person who has been hurt or injured can forgive. And because every injury is unique, no one else can fully comprehend the pain that's been caused. And that's what makes forgiveness so hard. This is the the dilemma that Peter presents to Jesus in our gospel reading. In the story, Peter is frustrated. He's exasperated. Someone in their little community of believers has, as we might say, done it again. We don't know exactly what this someone has done or what he has, or who he's done it to, but he's blown it again. He said something he shouldn't have said, dropped the ball, betrayed a trust, stabbed somebody in the back with more gossip and rumors. Who knows what it was this time? All we know is that he's a serial jerk A repeat offender. Maybe Peter is the victim and he's finally had enough. This will not happen again, he says. This has to end. Have you ever been there? That place where you finally say, I'm done. I just can't take this anymore. Peter pulls Jesus aside. When is enough enough, Jesus? Can we just put an end to this once and for all? How many times will we let this guy off the hook? Is seven times the limit? Maybe this was the eighth time that Peter had been wronged by this guy and he just didn't think he could do it anymore. Maybe Peter knew that the the Jewish tradition called for giving someone three chances and after seven chances, he figured he was already being overly generous. Jesus, seven times, is is that enough? That's enough, right? But Jesus says, not even close, Peter. Let me know when you've forgiven this guy 77 times, and then we'll talk. If 77 times isn't outrageous enough, some translators actually believe that Jesus said 70 times seven times. And in the case math isn't your strong suit, that's a total of 490 times. What Jesus is saying, in other words, is that there is no limit to forgiveness. So stop counting your grievances and get on with forgiving. When we pray the peace prayer and we ask God to help us pardon where there is injury, we have to put down our calculators and scorebooks. We have to set aside, at least temporarily, our feelings. And we have to commit to very specific intentional actions. Three things that forgiveness requires of us. First, we have to name and confront the reality of what has happened. In our passage, Jesus says, if another member sins against you, go and point out the fault when the two of you are alone. If the member listens to you, you have regained that one. Jesus believed in the power of leaning into hard and honest conversations. He understood that it's the antidote to what we are most prone to do when someone hurts us, which is to talk to everyone else but the one who has hurt us about the one who has hurt us. We're sympathy junkies when whenever we're in pain. We want everyone to know how bad it feels. We want everyone to know how bad the one who has hurt us really is. We want everyone to take our side in order to justify our sense of grievance and our desire for revenge. Can you believe he did that, we say? What kind of person would say or do this? And of course, the only answer is that No kind of person could do this, as if the one who hurt you is inherently somehow less than a person. But what if instead of blaming and shaming the wrongdoer, we name and expose the wrongdoing? South Africa's Truth and Reconciliation Commission, led by Anglican Bishop Desmond Tutu, proved that this is the key to any hope for a future of peace. As apartheid slowly crumbled under international pressure and a violent insurgency, not many people thought that South Africa could avoid a bloody revolution. Even if the political transition from an all white to an African authority could be accomplished peacefully, everyone expected a payback period A time of bloody retaliation against the police, the courts, the military that for decades had enforced apartheid so brutally and violently. But Nelson Mandela and other African leaders came up with this notion of forming commissions to which perpetrators of violence on both sides would be invited to testify in exchange for clemency. It wasn't a perfect system, but something amazing began to happen as witnesses told their stories of how they had participated in the violence as victims or as perpetrators. The proceedings took on the spiritual aura of a church confessional. Strong, hardened, violent men shed tears when confronted by their victims or their victims' families. Thousands and thousands of testimonies eventually led to a new season of healing and hope for an entire nation. The cycle of evil had been interrupted. When Bishop Tutu wrote his memoir, he curiously called it, No Future Without Forgiveness. There's power in truth telling of bringing to light the injuries we often keep in the dark. This is the first step in the process of pardoning and forgiving. To say this happened this is what you've done. When we speak those words without condemnation, we can feel the chains of our grievance begin to loosen, and we can see a way out of the imprisonment that our own pain has created for us. And when we say, this is what I have done, we can begin to feel the chains of our sin and regret loosen, and we begin to see a way out of the imprisonment of our own shame. It doesn't always happen so easily, but the way of forgiveness demands that we try. The late Fred Craddock told a story about a six-year-old boy whose mother asked him to stop running through the house because he might stumble and fall and hurt himself or break something, so of course, he ran and stumbled and fell and broke a vase. His father saw it all happen, picked him up, dusted him off and said, don't worry about it, it's it's just a vase. But his mother knelt down, gathered up the shattered pieces and said softly, it wasn't just a vase, it was my favorite vase. My mother gave it to me, her mother gave it to her and I looked forward to giving it to my children. And she wept and the little boy wept. And the mother took her in her arms and, and hugged him, and, and he hugged her back. Craddock asked the question, who forgave here, the father or the mother? Forgiveness names the reality of what has happened. Secondly, forgiveness remembers God's preemptive grace. Centuries ago, the great theologian Augustine came up with this radical idea he called prevenient grace. It's this idea that God's grace and forgiveness actually comes to us before we ask for it, before we even think about it. This grace, Augustine said, is the basis of our relationship with God. Not our inherent moral goodness, not our proper beliefs about God, but uh, but God's grace. William Willimon, he calls it a preemptive forgiveness. God's forgiveness comes before repentance. God's forgiveness defines God's relationship with all of creation from the very beginning of creation. Willimon says it's almost as if when God began creating the world, the first word was not let there be light, but rather let there be forgiveness. I know in today's culture we don't like the idea that there's anything about us that needs forgiving. We want to go easy on the sin language. Sometimes our self-esteem is just too fragile to ever think that we might not be perfect after all. But still, we all know deep down that there is no one who is perfect. That what we all have in common is this gap between who we really are and who we really could be between what we've become and who God has created us to be. And that prevenient grace, that preemptive forgiveness, is the only bridge that can get us across that gap. In October of 2006, a shooting occurred at the West Nickel Mines School an Amish one-room schoolhouse in the Old Order Amish community of Nickel Mines in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. Five little Amish girls were killed. Five others were wounded. Sister Joan Chittister wrote at that time, she said, it was not the violence suffered by the Amish that stunned people, it was that the Amish community simply refused to hate what had hurt them. An Amish grandfather, standing at the foot of one of the graves, said, do not think evil of this man. A delegation of Amish visited the family of the killer who killed himself at the end of the rampage and said to them, do not leave, stay in your home here. Over the years, the Amish have given comfort and unconditional support to the widow of that gunman and her three children. They even put up a Christmas tree at the local fire station and decorate it with toys and gifts for the family. Chittister wrote, It was not the violence that shocked us. It was the forgiveness that followed. Forgiveness that We were not prepared for. It was the lack of recrimination, the dearth of vindictiveness that that left us amazed. It was the Christianity we all profess, but which they practiced that left us stunned. Never had we seen such a thing. Forgiveness remembers God's preemptive grace. Maybe that's why we find So much hope and strength in that old familiar hymn, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. And third and finally, forgiveness is love's decision to disrupt the consequences of one's actions. We live in this endless cycle of retribution, an eye for an eye. Every action is met by an equal and opposite reaction. But the peace prayer asks us, where there is injury, pardon. We're asking God to to make us instruments in the interruption of that cycle of, of violence in which injury is always met with injury. Forgiveness is love's Disruption of the consequences of one's actions. It says, The cycle of hurt will end with me. I will not perpetuate it or transmit it. I will transform it instead. Jesus said, Do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Years ago, a fight broke out in the neighborhood I was living in at the time. A couple had moved in next door to the, a neighbor in this neighborhood, a man who immediately rejected this new couple. He would tell everybody in the neighborhood, I just don't approve of their kind. Their kind happened to be the gay kind, and, and the disapproving man was the Bible-believing Christian kind who couldn't bear the thought of two gay men living next door. One day, the couple's dog jumped over the back fence and wandered into the front yard of that man who shot and killed the dog. The gunshot echoed through the neighborhood and when I arrived, one of the men was holding his dog in his arms while the other was on his knees holding his bloodied face where he had been punched by the man. And standing before them was that neighbor with a shotgun. Unapologetic, defiant. The whole scene was just sad and tragic. A few months later, that neighbor suffered a stroke. Paralyzed on one side, unable to speak, he spent weeks in rehab. And while he was away, those two neighbors of his mowed his lawn every weekend. They repaired a clogged drain in the kitchen for his wife. They hauled out her trash to the curbside every Monday morning, whatever you need, they said, we're right next door. We're Christians too. And when the man finally came home from the hospital, they brought over a pot of chicken soup, a loaf of homemade bread, and they said to him, welcome home. We're glad you're here. Our takeaways for today. Naming the reality of the injury is the first step of forgiveness and the gateway to freedom. Because God forgives us preemptively, we can forgive retroactively. God is making us into instruments of disruption in the endless cycle forgiveness
0: Thanks for tuning in to this week's podcast. And if you'd like more information, go to www.gosaintandrew.com. See you next week.